Welcome to the Bruce Siski Show. Follow the Bruce Siski Show on Twitter to interact anytime. Got something on your mind? You can text Bruce during the show by using the short code 84454. You're listening to the Bruce Siski Show on 610 and FM 103.9 KDAL. It is 10-11 Thursday morning, 14th of December 2023. Bruce Siski Show on KDAL. Very nice of you to join us today. Uh, we are dipping into our show archives today and uh, something we do each and every year towards the end of the year. We got a, a few more live guests, a uh, really cool deal we're going to do on Tuesday as we mark the 75th anniversary of Duluth East Hockey with a couple of members of the Fisher family in studio. That'll be on Tuesday morning. Uh, Stephen Walters, Duluth Harbor Monsters will be in studio on Monday uh, Wednesday next week, we are going to be chatting with Andy Herman of the Pack-A-Day podcast on the Packers and the playoff push here down the stretch. Thursday, our annual World Junior Hockey Championship preview with Dave Starman of NHL Network, and then we'll be off for the holiday and uh, back after the new year with live shows in studio. But uh, in the meantime, I did want to take a few opportunities here uh, this week and next to spotlight some of my favorite conversations from 2023, and I want to run this one first. Uh, we're going to get we get some news that we'll cover the wild uh, shakeup in the front office. Apparently, now some injury news to discuss on the ice as well. Oof, it's uh, not really happy times for the Wild. The, the coaching change didn't solve everything in a shocking development. We'll get to that here in a little bit, but. I uh, wanted to highlight this conversation from September 1st. Actually, September 12th was the date. Uh, but first, we're going to do this from September. Uh, Tim Hornbaker has written a number of books inside and outside the world of professional wrestling. This one is a def- what I think is the definitive biography on one of the all-time greats in professional wrestling. A uh, guy who's got a lot of ties to the state of Minnesota, the nature boy, Ric Flair. And we had Tim Hornbaker on the radio show September 12th, the day the book came out. The book is called The Last Real World Champion. You can get it now just in time for Christmas. Here's my chat with Tim Hornbaker. Congratulations on this book release. Uh, You know, this is going to be a really dumb question, but I know there's a lot of people out there listening that probably aren't big wrestling fans, so I'm going to ask it. What inspired you to write a book about the, the, the life and the history of the nature boy Ric Flair? Well, I think Ric Flair is is definitely one of the all-time great professional wrestlers. And as a wrestling historian, I kind of wanted to dive into his his past. And to add to, there are documentaries and books out on on him that are out there. And I kind of wanted to dive into his story and kind of clear up some misconceptions, and then add to a historical perspective and give readers, uh, fans, and even non-fans a, a a really good look a deep perspective on his life and career. This is a, a career, by the way, that began some 50 years ago, more than 50 years ago, and it began not too far from where we are here in Duluth, Minnesota. But what's interesting, Tim, is you know you think about you know, the great actors, you can you can tell their first credit. You know what, What's the first thing they starred in, that type of thing? Ric Flair's professional wrestling debut is a bit of a mystery, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It was one of those things where historians and writers of the day had had a date in mind. They said it was December 10, 1972. 
and they said happened uh, in Wisconsin somewhere. And basically, as I was digging into this and researching, and Flair himself had said that that's when he made his pro debut. So I actually went into the records, was trying to search to find out where it actually happened, and I came up pretty much empty-handed in terms of trying to find a specific date. But it it is around there, and it either happened in Wisconsin or Minnesota, and it could have been happened near where you are, uh, up in Duluth area. We just don't know for sure where it happened, but it, it is one of those mysteries that will remain. Uh, Rick Flair, as he got in, into professional wrestling, his start was in the AWA, Vern Gagne's territory that ran out of Minnesota. What, what can you tell us and, and share about Rick Flair's time in the AWA? Well, absolutely. Vern Gagne's AWA was, was where uh, Vern, uh, Rick Flair got his, his training, and he went through Vern Gagne's initial training camp there uh, in, near the Twin Cities and, uh, and made his pro debut and entered the business as a rookie in the AWA and uh, in that upper Midwest territory. Um, Flair was uh, a larger man, I'll say. He wasn't like you envisioned him in his heyday. He was north of 250 pounds. He was more of a, uh, a bulky bodybuilder type. But he definitely learned the ropes there, wrestling with some of the greats, Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens. He learned from these guys and built a repertoire that would uh, help him as he developed his career. We're talking to Tim Hornbaker, the last real-world champion. The biography of the nature boy, Ric Flair, is available today wherever you get your books. So one of the things I thought was interesting, because I, I will be honest, I am a wrestling fan. I have been since I was a kid. It's only been in the last three or four years that I've gotten a little more into the history of the business and trying to understand you know, the, the way things worked back in the 60s and 70s and even before that. And so I was unaware of this until actually I read your book that you know Dusty Rhodes, the American Dream, was a big influence on Ric Flair's wrestling gimmick. I, I guess I didn't make the connection at any point, but you've got a story in the book that I thought was really interesting that Ric Flair wanted to be almost an in-ring brother to Dusty Rhodes at one point. Absolutely. Dusty Rhodes had a tremendous influence on Ric Flair. I mean, I don't think a lot of people do realize that, that uh, when Flair was breaking into the business in the AWA, that Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch, the Texas Outlaws, were one of the top uh, bad guy tag teams of the era. And Ric Flair was uh, one of the – he wanted to be one of them. He wanted to hang out with them. He wanted to – dress like them, wear the cowboy hats and the cowboy boots. And, yeah, his initial idea was to actually be rambling Ricky Rhodes, uh, a, a brother of Dusty Rhodes. Vern uh, Gagne and Dusty Rhodes, though, disagreed with that idea and wanted him to go on his own path. But Flair was definitely influenced by Dusty Rhodes. There's no question about it. Now, I am uh, one of the things I enjoy, whether it be sports or, or even wrestling sometimes, I think about the what-ifs. This one fascinates me because I think Ric Flair was talented enough that Ric Flair could have, you know, he could have portrayed a car salesman and made it a really interesting wrestling character. But it makes me wonder the arc of the business, how influential Ric Flair, the nature boy, was if instead of being Ric Flair, he'd been rambling Ricky Rhodes. Absolutely. I mean, I think it would have changed things, but I think Flair had the innate ability and the talent to make that work. Had he gone in that direction or if he would have gone and, you know, like you said, Bruce, had he gone and done any gimmick that he wanted, insurance salesman, he could have done anything and made it into a wrestling character and, and perfected it and sold it to the public. 
obviously as he's coming into the business, he is up you know up there working with guys that are much more experienced. Tim, how did Ric Flair? you know, acquit himself with these more experienced, these tougher competitors, the Greg Gagne's of the world as he's coming up? I think he just gritted it out. I think he just was in there night after night after night, putting in the time and the experience. And I think guys like uh, Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel, some of these guys who were really tough as nails characters, really kind of put Flair through the, gave him the business, I would say, in the ring and made him sharpen his skills to the point where, he could go in the ring with anyone of, of, of greater skill, lesser skill, and, and put on a good match. Tim Hornbaker, our guest. We are talking about the book, The Last Real World Champion, the biography of Ric Flair. Tell me about Ric Flair driving around and traveling around and partying with Andre the Giant. Yes. Uh, in his early days, Flair was uh, actually took on the role of Andre the Giant's driver for a while, and there's a uh, famed story about them uh, cruising into the Windy City in Chicago and and, and enjoying the nightlife. Uh, I believe it was Rush Street that they were on, enjoying uh, cocktails. And, you know, Andre the Giant, with his legendary stories of drinking, you can only imagine uh, a young Ric Flair, the nature boy, before he actually was the nature boy, hanging out with the larger-than-life Andre the Giant. So it probably was a, a, an amazing sight to behold. Tim, you've got another book on, on the history of wrestling called Death of the Territories, and it, and it goes into a lot of detail on the way things used to be in pro wrestling, where the AWA was kind of that upper Midwest territory, but there were these territories all over the country. How did Ric Flair end up leaving the AWA? I think he had put in his time in the AWA, and he wasn't seeing a career progression that he would have liked. I think Bern Gagne was kind of a guy who wanted to keep you in place for a while before building you up and putting you in a, a better spot. And he actually had such a, uh, a wonderful cast of, of, of wrestlers at the time. So I think Flair felt that he needed to go outside the AWA to have career progression. He went to the Mid-Atlantic region and base out of Charlotte, where he did receive the new opportunities and saw his career flourish. We're talking to Tim Hornbaker on the last Real World Champion, the Nature Boy Ric Flair. So as he as he heads to the South and, and he begins working down there, eventually, of course, he does develop this Nature Boy gimmick, but it wasn't necessarily an original production, right? No, absolutely not. Uh, George Scott, the, the matchmaker in Charlotte, actually uh, wanted a pattern flair after the original Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers. Buddy Rogers was another blonde hair, uh, cool, villainous type of the wrestling ring. And uh, George Scott, I, I, I have to presume that he saw the same image for Flair, and Flair picked up that ball, ran with it, and made it his own, for sure. How did uh, Ric Flair, how did it help him over the course of his career to be able to work like he did as long as he did with Wahoo McDaniel? Wow. Wahoo McDaniel was, uh, I would say, one of the tremendous influences on Flair's career. Wahoo McDaniel was, was extremely durable and tough with his football background. Uh, I think Flair just came under Wahoo's uh, wing at, at the time and learned so much from him about uh, conditioning and just uh, a, a style of wrestling that he, he probably didn't deal with beforehand to any extent. So Wahoo had a tremendous influence on Flair, and Flair took that and, and carried it the rest of his career. When Flair adopted the Nature Boy persona, did that take off right away? Um, I would say I think 
Flair already had a kind of a following there in the Mid-Atlantic region. And I would say that once he kind of morphed into the Nature Boy and, and made that his own, I think fans were responding to him in a big way. So I think it was a, a thing that was happening prior to it. And then once he stepped into that role and kind of, you know, proclaimed that he was a Nature Boy and he was, you know, making these grandiose statements, I think that it just took off from there. Uh, but, yeah, it definitely he had the momentum going his way at that time. Uh, Tim, uh, you know, we, we talked about, you know, Wahoo McDaniel, the rivalry that Flair and Wahoo had in the ring. The, it lasted a long time. Uh, do you think that that was kind of the moment where – people maybe outside the territory began to take notice of, of what they had in Ric Flair? I think that I think it's definitely an important factor because you, you gauge a wrestler from a promoter or a matchmaker point of view. You look at wrestlers to see if they're, they have the, the durability and the strength and the conditioning and, and the, the will to, to be a, a top professional wrestler. And Flair had the natural gift, I would say, personality-wise. He had the charisma. So from a promoter's point of view, you want to look at him and see, does he have the internal grit to be able to go across the country and even across the world and wrestle different uh, opponents of different sizes and, uh, and ability and to um, you know see if he can could, he could manage that. And Wahoo, I think, put him through these insane trials to challenge him and Flair survived those challenges, and, and look what he was able to do. I think the first time I remember at least seeing Ric Flair wrestle was probably late 80s-ish on the old TBS, the Saturday night TBS uh, Superstation show that I happened to stumble on at some point at Grandma's house because she had cable and we didn't at my house. And I remember it had to have been, I don't know, it have been Jim Ross or somebody else, but whoever was calling the match, talked about he got hit in the back at some point or he did a back bump, one or the other, and they talked about the plane crash. I knew nothing at the time of the plane crash, 1975, but this was a plane crash that almost took Ric Flair from us. It did. It did. It it was a devastating crash. There were six people aboard. It was flying uh, to Wilmington for a show in North Carolina. And uh, the pilot, uh, I guess he didn't compensate for the the overload and weight between the wrestlers and their baggage and uh, the fuel. And essentially, the plane ran out of fuel heading. They were almost to the airport. They could see it. They ran out of fuel and and hit an embutment. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of serious uh, injuries. Johnny Valentine's career was ended. Ric Flair actually suffered a broken back in the uh, the, uh, plane crash. And doctors told him that he would never wrestle again. And I attribute this to his conditioning and his, his mental strength and his, uh, his love of professional wrestling. But Flair not only bounced back but became a, a, a wrestling legend. These puddle jumper planes were pretty common in, in the territory days. And, and one of the podcasts I listen to now with Jim Cornette and, and Brian Last, they've told this story. And I think they might have referenced it when they had you on here recently on their podcast. 1978. Eight ish, I think it was. Flair got double booked for a show in. He was in North Carolina. Did like an eight o'clock, like an opening match, and then he flew to Tampa and got to the ring in time for the main event. What do you know about that? Yeah, that's just one of the most uh, surprising stories. But again, it shows Flair's dedication to the business that he was actually double booked on a day and a day and evening, and he had to appear in North Carolina, jump on the plane, like you said. 
I mean, he literally they put him on early on in the program to get him out of there. Usually a main event star would wrestle the last uh, match of the show, but they got him on early knowing that he had to make a quick flight to Tampa. And then, of course, they on the other end, they had him on as late as possible, keeping the fans around, you know, extending matches. Blair gets to the airport. They get him into a car, get him to the arena. He goes on, probably wrestles a 30-minute match. But he, you know, it shows his drive, conditioning, and love for the business. Uh, Tim, I don't know about you, but if I'd have been involved in a small plane crash in 1975, you would not have flown me anywhere in 1978. That would have been the end of me flying. I, yeah, I, I agree, Bruce, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. You know, seriously, for Flair, he's just a survivor, and I don't even think he thought twice about it. He loved the business and just kept going. We're talking to Tim Hornbaker, the last real world champion. The biography of Ric Flair it is now out. Now I got a couple of more here. Uh, something else that you've referenced uh, via Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it now is that when Ric Flair was the NWA World Heavyweight Champion and he was flying all over the place to make dates, you referenced that at one point that guy flew 33,000 miles in a month? Yes. That was wow. an incredible. Yeah, that was an incredible journey that he was on. I mean, he was wrestling night after night after night as the NWA World Champion, appearing in cities large and small, sometimes going into places like uh, Hayes, Kansas, and Hutchinson, Kansas, where... You know, there's there's not that many people I'll say, but then also heading into Charlotte before you know ten thousand people, and uh, then flying overseas to Tokyo. So yes, in, in one uh, stretch of time, he was wrestling every single night, making TV dates, and going to, going to Japan, and he wrestled uh, approximately thirty. Uh, he, he traveled approximately thirty three thousand miles in a, in a month's time. So yeah, it was an astonishing find to learn that, but again, it just how uh, dedicated Flair was to the business. Uh, Ric Flair eventually would leave. Uh, would, leave would Of course, he would join WCW, World Championship Wrestling, as, as the territories all kind of died off and wrestling became this kind of national bit. He got in a dispute with them, left for the WWF. He took the World Championship with him at one point. He was the real world's champion with the WCW belt on WWF television, which was just jarring to see at the time. But then he ends up back in WCW, Tim, and it, it felt like that's kind of where he belonged all along. I, I agree 100%. I mean, WCW was his home. It was the lineage of the old Jim Crockett promotions and the NWA. WCW, uh, you know, seeing him in the WWF was nice. I mean, you know, he, he, sh he shined there. He won the title two times. He wrestled at WrestleMania. But getting him back to WCW and Starcade and some of those big events and back in the ring with Sting and Ricky Steamboat, that was where he needed to be, and I think he knew that as well. So his homecoming was definitely a big event for fans at the time and uh, fondly remembered to this day. Would you say, and i only got time for a couple more here, Tim, but would you say that, that of, of all the rivalries he had, maybe the most consistently good matches he had came with Ricky Steamboat? It, it has to be. Steamboat, you know, they were wrestling in the 70s. I mean, they really they got to know each other there where they, they didn't have to – pre-script a match beforehand. They could go in the ring and battle each other and wrestle these these intense classics. And when they uh, they continued their rivalry in the 80s and then 1989, they had this tremendous series, uh, uh, three matches that uh, legendary. And then even uh, up until 1994, they were wrestling great matches. So I have to say that, yes, uh, without, a, without a doubt, uh, Flair and Steamboat had the most chemistry in the ring that I've ever seen 
And uh, yeah, they were they were legendary matches. Finally, Tim, what would you say is the legacy of Ric Flair? That's a great question, uh, Bruce. Uh, you know, throughout writing this bu- book, I, I had a lot of time to reflect on that and to put him into perspective. Without question, the Nature Boy Ric Flair is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. Uh, he, he performed well in the ring. He did interviews. I mean, living up to the standards that uh, Luthez and some of the greats of the past had put forth. But then he, he kind of rose above that as a dedicated uh, wrestler and champion. And by touring the world and, and wrestling uh, many different types of styles and, and against many different types of competitors, he just established himself uh, firmly as a Hall of Fame wrestler. And his legacy will, will never change or deviate from that because of what, it, what he was able to accomplish. That is Tim Hornbaker. The book, again, is called The Last Real World's Champion, The Legacy, The Story of the Nature Boy, Ric Flair. You can get it wherever you get your books. And certainly uh, if you've got a wrestling fan in your family, maybe somebody who watched it back in the day, is at all familiar with the territory days, you know, the old AWA here in Minnesota, I would highly recommend it. It's a fantastic read. And Tim did a fantastic – the research that he put into that, unbelievable. And – he deserves all the credit for that. Tim Hornbaker, again, the last real world champion. 1032, more to come. Bruce Siski Show, Thursday morning edition. Brought to you by Sanju at Sanju.com on KDAL. This is the Golden Gopher Daily Update. I'm Mike Grimm. We'll talk Minnesota basketball next. We are professionals. We are family and friends. We are volunteers. We are community partners. We are a team dedicated to helping you succeed. We help protect and serve America's businesses. When you need us, we're here to help. At Federated Mutual Insurance Company, it's our business to protect yours. Rated A-plus superior by AM Best Company. The Golden Gopher women's basketball team moved to 10-1 on the season after yesterday's 96-64 victory over Grambling State at Williams Arena. Head coach Don Plitzewhite told Justin Gard after the game her team played better defensively after halftime. I think we did a better job of understanding, keeping them in front, helping each other, and getting some ball pressure at the same time. So sometimes when you're trying to keep teams away from the rim, you do it without really getting pressure on the basketball at the same time. And I thought that improved late in the second quarter and then in the third and the fourth quarter. I think at the same time, the Grambling hit some tough shots in the first half. Some of the shots that they hit weren't necessarily easy shots and I think we had to weather a little bit of the storm. You've talked before about the green light that Mara Braun has that maybe some other players don't. Was the third quarter where we all just on the Mara Braun expressway? I mean, she comes out and hits those three threes and that really breaks it open. I mean, what do you see from her when that when that's going on? And now after coaching her for a few games, whatever game we're on, 10 games, 11 games, something along those lines, it's kind of like, well, just keep finding ways to get her opportunities and and that's the kind of the mentality we were in at that point in time is we were going to keep trying to get the ball in her hands in different ways to get her some shots and and she certainly responded at a pretty high level braun led all scorers with 26 the gopher women will host lindenwood a week from today at three o'clock at the barn the gopher men will host ball state that night that's the golden gopher daily update i'm mike Graham. sound off with brad bennett middays on kdal Sunshine outside, nice and warm. Hopefully an opportunity to get out and enjoy it. Maybe button up any uh, winter preparations you need to do because you just never know when it's going to be nice like this again, right? Take advantage of it while you can. 
More to come on this Thursday edition, the latest on what apparently is a scandal unfolding in the Minnesota Wildfront office. Get details coming up and the latest news as we have it after a CBS News update at 1039. The Bruce Show. I heard you having money problems. No, you didn't. Listen, I got the answer. You declare bankruptcy, all your problems go away. How would that help, Creed? In Monopoly, you go bankrupt, you lose. You don't go by Monopoly, man. That game is nuts. Nobody just picks up get-out-of-jail-free cards. Those things cost thousands. That is a good point. Bankruptcy, Michael, is nature's do-over. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. On 610 and FM 103.9 KDAL. 1044. Leave more best of tomorrow. I think that's the plan. And then next week, Stephen Walters, Duluth Harbor, uh, Harbor Monsters. Open tryouts coming up. We'll talk about that on Monday. I'm kind of building a football team from scratch. Also next week, uh, we'll have on Tuesday in studio... This is pretty cool. Duluth East is marking its 75th season of boys' high school hockey. And we are going to have a Dick and Will Fisher, a couple of East fixtures in studio on Tuesday morning to discuss their 75th season celebration, which includes an alumni game that they're doing, a couple of alumni games actually, on December 23rd before junior varsity and varsity games against Moundsview, along with a post-game get-together at the Clyde for alumni and friends. So a uh, pretty neat deal. We'll talk about that on Tuesday. Andy Herman, Packaday Podcast, will be with us on Wednesday. Dave Starman, NHL Network, will break, uh, break down the World Juniors on Thursday next week. Uh, this is news with the Minnesota Wild. Michael Russo, Joe Smith of The Athletic, uh, confirming yesterday the departure of assistant GM Chris O'Hearn, which was a confirmed that a cryptic statement from the wild that basically said that O'Hearn and the team mutually agreed to part ways and the team would have no further comment. And this has led to all sorts of questions. This one could get messy. And here's why I say that. Uh, This is from this morning at theathletic.com. In recent weeks, there have been two investigations into the wild front office. Members of the team's hockey support staff, hockey operations department, and business staff began being interviewed regarding the second one by two attorneys on December 1st after the team returned from a road game in Nashville. O'Hearn was not the subject of the latter investigation. It's unknown the specific nature of any allegations against him. It appears the first investigation just happened to conclude at the same time the second one was being conducted. Uh, Further from Russo and Smith, what's interesting is that O'Hearn was the front office representative on the Wilds' latest four-game road trip, which ended Sunday in Seattle. He didn't give the appearance that anything was amiss, being around the team in his normal uh, jovial fashion and answering questions from reporters about the team likely needing to go into long-term injured reserve, which they did yesterday. Agents who have spoken to him in recent weeks said it was business as usual. Unusually, especially since this was the first long road trip for new coach John Hines, Bill Guerin was not on the road trip, nor was he at the team's charity gala Tuesday in St. Paul. Guerin's wife, Kara, appeared for her husband at a fan meet-and-greet, apologizing to those in attendance and saying Guerin was on an important call. The team asked players Jake Middleton and Brandon Duhame to fill in for Guerin. 
Team sources say the parting of ways with O'Hearn came that same day, not yesterday, when the team sent the statement out confirming the news. In the time since, Garen, normally as accessible as any executive in the league, has not responded to several messages. O'Hearn was Garen's right-hand man. He did contract negotiations. He was the capologist guy. In fact, uh, when we uh, talked to Garen uh, here in Duluth and they were here in October, kind of jokingly referenced attaching a calculator to his head for the season because they were so tight against the salary cap. He's also a CBA expert in that front office. If there's any types of issues in that regard. And last year, when you might remember the Wilds served as almost a banker at the trade deadline, they, they helped other teams facilitate trades that they didn't have the cap room to do. And it was O'Hearn that crunched all those numbers. So, and, and this is not a, a big front office. It's Garen. It was O'Hearn. They've got their analytics guy, Matt Sells, who's officially the vice president of hockey strategy and assistant to the general manager, Dwight Schrute, also known as Mike Murray, runs AHL Iowa. And that's that's his main gig is just the minor league team. So this is a hole that has to be filled in the front office. And, and obviously there are other concerns here with regard to what has happened. And there's no reason to dive into any speculation. There is a lot of speculation out there. If you'd like to find it, search it out on your uh, favorite social media app. It's there. We're not going to dive into any of that. I can just tell you this is unusual. O'Hearn, according to Russo, recently signed a contract extension. So this is... There's there's something going on, and and we don't know what that is, and and making any kind of grandiose statements about Garen not making himself available like he always does. I'll tell you what, Bill Garen is the face of this franchise right now, and he has embraced it. We him and I have talked about that that that, that this is the job to him that the, the the fans need to hear from him as often as as possible. Well. The fact that he's gone radio silent here, there's a reason for it. He's not just hiding because he wants to hide. Obviously, if you've got multiple investigations commissioned by external firms and your entire front office staff has basically been interviewed by in, in, as a result of at least one of those investigations, one of them clearly has either wrapped up or preliminary findings have shown enough that you made a significant change in the staff completely on a whim. There are legalities in play here. And it's important that not only Bill Guerin respects that, but that the people around him respect that and that the people covering the team respect that. This isn't a none-of-our-business proposition. And, and, I, and I hate to have to explain this to people like they're five, but... I'm not going to go with the we pay their salaries crap. I don't buy that. I don't think that we have any special access to information coming out of the organization because we buy tickets to watch them play games. However, we are talking about a facility in Excel Energy Center that was largely funded off public dollars. And guess what? They want more. The, The timing on this is just crazy. But they, the reports last week that they were going to want more money 
to get put into that building to renovate it, which I understand. You know, these buildings don't last forever. I get it. There's been new buildings with newer amenities, and there's all these new ideas on, on how to how to do all that. And so you want to get in on that. I, I understand it. I'm not even mad about it. But the timing, like <laughs> this isn't a right-hand, left-hand deal. The entire front office has been basically interviewed as a result of an investigation, and they think it's a good idea to leak that they want $300 million in public money for, for renovations to the arena. Eh, probably not the best time to put that out there. I'm just going to throw that in there. But anyway, we understand that, you know, why it is Bill Guerin hasn't made himself available. And when he can, I'm sure he will. When he can talk, I'm sure he'll have no problem doing that. But right now, not the time. Not the time, not the place. And as a result, he's gone silent, and we are left to kind of throw our hands in the air and wonder exactly what is going on here. Uh, with the Minnesota Wild. The Wild host Calgary tonight uh, mentioned they did use LTIR long-term injured reserve yesterday. Uh, Jonas Brodeen placed on LTIR. What that means is the hit that he took last Friday from Evander Kane to the Oilers is going to keep him out for a minimum of 10 games and 24 days. So yes, what that means is if he sits 10 games and it hasn't been 24 days yet. He's got to wait till it's been 24 days before he can come off LTIR. That gives the Wild some additional cap space. As a result of that cap space, they called up a couple of defensemen, Damon Hunt and Dakota Mermis, along with forward Vinny Letary from AHL Iowa yesterday. And there's a reason for that, and that is, according to Joe Smith, who covered the morning skate today in St. Paul, Jared Spurgeon is out tonight. We've not gotten that confirmed by the head coach, John Hines, yet, but it sounds like uh, Spurgeon will not play this evening as a result of whatever injury he has. He didn't skate yesterday. The Wild are hoping to have him available tonight. Looks like that will not be the case, which means the Wild have to play an honest and good as NHL team in the Calgary Flames without Jared Spurgeon and Jonas Brodeen. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yikes. Uh, 7 o'clock tonight on AM 710. Could be some fireworks in that one. 10.53, wrap it up in a moment. Bruce Siski Show on KDAL. Your Twin Ports home for Twins baseball. In the corner, KDAL. 10.59 on this Thursday. Sunshine. Still looking at mid and upper 30s for most of the listening area. Up to 46 already in Ashland. If you get out and enjoy it, I would certainly recommend that. We're back tomorrow, the award-winning, not really, Friday edition. And some more best of from 2023, plus Mr. Craig's along to usher in the weekend at 10.59. Have a great one. Thank you so much for listening. Brad and sound off after the news. This has been the Bruce Siski Show. Hit us up on Twitter at Bruce Siski Show and let us know what you think. No, yes, no, well... No, I I crossed my mind. Visit KDAL610.com to podcast today's show anytime. What would you say? Listen to shows on demand and download for free. You can also subscribe via Spotify or your favorite podcast app. This has been the Bruce Siski Show. CBS News is up next. For more than 80 years, KDAL 103.9, W28FBFM, and 610 KDAL, Duluth Superior, a Midwest communication station. KDAL.